Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by my favorite college in America, Hillsdale College, which proudly refuses every penny of government funding to remain independent. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. I hope you had a wonderful Independence Day, Independence Day weekend. The nation's birthday. Those of you who hate America, I hope you didn't have any time off. And remember this, you're always free to leave. We try to secure our border one way, not the other way. If you want to leave, leave. But they don't want to leave. They want to destroy. I want to talk about this issue of free speech. Not necessarily the First Amendment, per se, but free speech. There are limits to free speech. Like, our children shouldn't be shown pornography when they're in school or in school libraries. They shouldn't be taught about sexuality when they're five and six years old. They shouldn't be asked behind the backs of their parents whether they actually believe they are the right sex. And if they want something done about it, if they want to change their names. And yet I'm finding, I'm finding that on the radical left and the corporatists, they actually view that as a free speech issue. It's nothing to do with free speech. It's perversion. It's a violation of parental rights. Now, there's a lot to talk about today, and I'm going to get to all of it. But I'm now in the middle of a controversy. Why? Because I wrote a book. Are there dirty pictures in the book? No. Are there sexual graphics in the book? No. Do I go behind anybody's back? When this book is eventually released? No. So what's the controversy? The title of the book. The Democrat Party Hates America. I just found this out about two hours before I came on the air tonight. Now Target has told Simon & Schuster, my publisher, Threshold Books, that when the book comes out in September, it will not carry the book. It told them, quote, the title is polarizing, and Target wants to be sensitive to all their guests. But they will make it available at Target.com. The title is polarizing. Now, as I seem to recall, Target does a lot of polarizing stuff with clothing, with hiring, with customers, with colors, with flags. They're all into this ESG movement. But because I take on the opposite party, that's polarizing to the point where Target does not want its customers to have an option to purchase the book. Now, there are leftists going online saying, See this? You don't believe in, in a capitalist. Well, Target can do it at once. What are you talking about? What are you fools talking about? I, I'm not demanding that Target carry the book. I'm informing 14.5 million listeners that this company is 100% woke. 100% in the tank. For the left and the Democrat Party. Barnes and Noble's going to carry the book. Books of Millions going to carry the book. Walmart's going to carry the book, and a lot of them. And we'll see what happens down the road if they're boycotted or whatever. But Amazon didn't blink for all the criticism they take, didn't blink, not once. And so my view is that now that Target has thrown down the gauntlet fairly publicly, that I feel we need to throw down the gauntlet with them. 
This book is, for me, the greatest book I've ever written. I don't just say that. Those of you who get it and read it, you'll see what I mean. It's the greatest book I've ever written. My editors think so. My family thinks, oh, Mark, that's by, my family tells me the truth. The greatest book I've ever written. And I also think it's the most important under these circumstances. It's not written for Democrats. Unless they want to wake up. It's not written for the Democrat Party media. It's not written for Democrat Party professors and Democrat Party teachers unions and all the rest. It's written for you. And if you decide to give it to Democrats, that's a great thing. Maybe if they'll get past the first 50, 60 pages... A couple of light bulbs will go off. You've heard people call here and say that. You've heard them say that. But one of the things the Democrat Party is very high on these days is censorship. Whether it's corporate censorship, having nothing to do with the First Amendment, or censorship that violates the First Amendment. We're going to get to that in a minute with this fabulous ruling by this federal judge. But this book, in my view, needs to get into the hands of as many people as possible, which is why I think the ideologues, the radical left ideologues, are going to try and prevent that as much as they possibly can. I believe that. They will do everything they can. And so what I, I do believe in capitalism. I do believe in the market system. And that's why I'm going to encourage those of you who haven't already not to shop at Target. I'm not trying to compel Target to carry my book. But they're offending my audience. And they're offending me. And if that's the basis for corporatist censorship, okay, fine. We can play that game too. I am not going to roll over and play dead. That's not going to happen. Republicans and conservatives do that too damn often. In fact, Target's proving the point of the book. The Marxists want monopoly control. A politics, a voting, of the culture, of the government, of the country. That's what they want. And a book like this is dangerous to them. It's dangerous to them. They know it, and I know it. And the Democrat Party has its finger in all of this. It is the organization through which these movements are organized. Like in any autocratic, repressive regime. They need an organization. They need a body through which they act politically, culturally, win elections in order to destroy elections. And if that's how this book is viewed by them, then I think by you it should be viewed as their kryptonite. So I'm hoping as many of you as possible who can afford it If you're thinking about getting it, you'll go in and get it now at Amazon.com. Now, some people have said, well, the discount's been changed. Discount's going to change right up to the point it's released. But if they release it on a 30-40% discount on on the date of release, you will get that discount. That's my understanding. You have nothing to fear from that. Thank God there are many platforms now for publishing... And for making books available to you. It's strange. You know, it really is strange. It's so weird. I feel like I'm going back to the time of uh, the King of England and the, and the colonists. Who can publish what? Shh. Don't read that book in public. Rush used to say about liberty and tyranny. Make sure you read it, but put it in a paper bag. 
And I'm sure he'd say the same about this one. You know what else he would say? Don't take their crack. Don't take their crap. Go out there and kick butt. And he'd join in and he'd help. I want nothing more than for you people to get this book and read it. If you're just going to get it to get it, don't get it. Get it and read it and then pass it along to somebody else. I'm telling you, only about, let me count, four people have read this book beginning to end. Four. Four. The vice president, Simon & Schuster, my editor and assistant editor and my wife. That's it. And for all of them, their chins drop. Well, Mark, you know, they, no, no. I'm telling you, and I feel it in my own, look, nobody's a harder marker on me than me. Whether it's radio or TV or Blaze TV or writing book. Nobody is a harder marker than I am. Nobody. On me. And the truth will be as they say in the pudding. Once you get it, once you read it, you'll know. Was Mark telling the truth or not? But I know who doesn't want you to read it. And I know who will do everything they can to prevent it from being made publicly available. They will fail. But I do think we need to take names. Not to compel people to do things they don't want to do. I don't care. Target doesn't have to take the book. Who cares? But what I care about is the motive behind it. It's bigger than Target. It's to keep information, historical facts, critical philosophical points, present-day information, connecting the dots, and all the rest of it out of your hands. Because what the Democrat Party and their Marxist friends want more than anything else is conformity. Conformity. They don't want you to think for yourself. They want you to be embarrassed to carry a book that says the Democrat Party hates America out of a bookstore. They want you to be embarrassed to have it delivered to your home from Amazon. They want you to be embarrassed to read it on a plane and carry it under your arm. Are they embarrassed about anything? Anything. They're in your face. They're in the face of your children. They don't care. Well, we need to get stronger. We need to get stronger. I already said, I know what kind of grief I'm going to (coughs) take from this book. I don't care. When you read it, you'll see why. This isn't a polemical book. This isn't a shoot... From the hip book. Those of you who've read my other books, like American Marxism and Liberty and Tyranny, you know how I write. This book flows like a novel. But it is brutal. Like the title. There's no reason to hide. And we need to make sure we never get to the day, 5, 10, 20 years from now, when we have to hide. When our children have to hide. So if you can go over to Amazon.com and we can drive this thing up the list to number one, I would really think that would send a message to everybody. And they need to have a message. If you can't, I completely understand. Target is not required to carry this book. Did I say call Target and tell them to carry this book? No. It's what they're doing, what others are doing, and not just to me. Mark. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. 
It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Can I ask a question of those of you who follow this stuff? Why do people bothering bother commenting on sites of people they don't like? Isn't that weird, Mr. Producer? Why do you come on my sites and comment about me? If you don't like me, just go away. Just go away. I mean, it's so weird. Get a life. Go on the sites where you slobber over people. You know, like Hunter Biden. Does he have a site? I don't know. But there's all kinds of reprobates, malcontents, miscreants, perverts for you Democrats and liberals to follow. You probably do follow them. And they probably follow you, if you get my drift. Maybe right in the target, as a matter of fact. But anyway, you get my point. I remember when uh, Sarah Palin, I think it was in her commercial, she had, among other things, a picture of a target. And not about shooting people, but, you know, a political thing, targeting issues. And so she had a picture of a target, and this horrendous murder took place. In Arizona, killing a federal judge and maiming, maiming the congresswoman and so forth. And yet now we have a radical left corporatist corporation. They've taken over this corporation, which I'm sure was perfectly fine before the board of directors was infiltrated. And it's a big target. And it's called Target. And the left loves it. So they use the target against Sarah Palin. She's responsible for deaths, don't you know? And yet here's a whole store that's called Target with targets everywhere. The bags have a target. The wall has a target. The picture is a target. There's a target on the shirt. A target, targets everywhere. And they're concerned about me? The title of the book. Now, they haven't read the book. Nobody has it yet. <laughs> they haven't read the book. Now, if I wrote a book that says uh, transgendering uh, in Newark, New Jersey, that would be right there on the top shelf, wouldn't it, Mr. Producer? Absolutely. Put a special flag on it. And how about Jenny's parents have no business, meaning no business in knowing what their kid does. There it is. It's right on the shelf. Everything's great. Or every hate book you can imagine against Donald Trump, I'm sure they've carried. They're not concerned about that part of their customer base. They're only concerned about, well, the Democrats, they're so sensitive, don't you know? But this certainly does expose the problem. Not just this, but a lot of things. A book that in part talks about so many things, but in this issue corporatists and what they're doing these days and they just did it <laughs> can't wait till this thing comes out to be honest with you <clears throat> can't wait because all these books relate to what's taking place or some philosophical issue or historical issue I don't come on here and say hey can I tell you about my new book on cooking chocolate chip cookies baking I guess they say Shows you how much I do. The answer is no. Because then you're just hawking. I'm hawking principles and ideas. I'm hawking history. I'm hawking, I hope, together with you, whether we can save this, this place or not. So I'm deeply, deeply concerned about it, as I know you are as well. And we should be. 
Now let's move on. <coughs> I want to talk about this judge. This judge, this federal district judge in Louisiana. Do you know he's an Obama appointee? Because MSNBC keeps changing his name. Obama, Obama appointee Judge Terry Doherty. That's his name. Trump appointee. Now we have Obama appointees, and remember, remember when the late great John Roberts got mad at Trump, sent him a letter. Hey, just because they're Obama appointees doesn't mean. But he's not sending anybody letters now, is he? Oh, it's a Trump appointee. Oh, it must be bad. That explains everything. And on MSNBC, it does. They're very surface level, malcontents. Strange lineup of, really. Some of the dumbest people who've ever walked or crawled on the face of the earth. Terry Dowdy, a Louisiana federal judge, writes Harry Blaff at the National Review, and I've read this opinion. It's a long opinion. It's fantastic. Issued a preliminary injunction Tuesday blocking certain federal agencies and officials, including the FBI and Department of Homeland Health and Human Services, from communicating with social media platforms. This guy is my new hero by the way. The ruling comes after the Attorney Generals of Louisiana, Missouri, filed a lawsuit arguing that federal officials overstepped their mandates and curtailed conservative speech throughout the pandemic. Judge Dowdy wrote that he's likely to side with the plaintiffs on the merits of the case, but issued a temporary injunction preventing communication between the government and big tech companies save for matters pertaining to criminal activity or national security threats until the case is resolved. Now, we know the legal analysts and the, the professors, and we know the low IQ hosts on certain networks, on certain programs. That judge, what a dumb judge. Yeah, that judge doesn't know anything. Come on, that, that stupid judge. He's, Obama, he's a, excuse me, a Trump appointee, for God's sakes. Oh, okay. That's right, the three stooges on the Supreme Court, they're geniuses, especially Sotomayor. I will continue. Play, uh, opposition to COVID-19 vaccines, he wrote. Opposition to COVID-19 masking and lockdowns. Opposition to the lab leak theory of COVID-19. Opposition to the validity of the 2020 election. Opposition to President Biden's policies. Statements that Hunter Biden laptop story was true, the federal judge continued. All were suppressed did his homework. What do you think, he's Elena Kagan? It's quite telling that each example or category he wrote of suppressed speech was conservative in nature. This targeted suppression of conservative ideas is a perfect example of viewpoint discrimination of political speech. American citizens have the right to engage in free debate about the significant issues affecting the country. Ooh! I don't think he shops at Target either, Mr. Producer. No. Now, the temporary injunction specifically named high-ranking Biden officials, including DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayakos and Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency Leader Jen Easterly. Senator Eric Schmidt, who served as Missouri's Attorney General until January 20. 23 applauded the decision, said today's court win is a huge win for the First Amendment and blow to censorship. Orwellian Ministry of Truth exposed, he added a few hours later. Now, I love this guy, he's great, but see, it's not Orwellian Ministry of Truth, is it? Nowhere does he say the Democrat Party. This is just like they never would talk about Marxism. You know, the progressives, you know, the extreme liberals, you know, the big government. No. They're Marxists. They have taken Marxism and they've Americanized it. They've tailored it to our culture. And I think we've made a lot of head with it. So no, we need to be able to say Orwellian, mystery, Orwellian Ministry of Truth is fine, but it's the Democrat Party iron fist. That's what it is. Say it! Schmidt's counterpart, Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry, was similarly pleased with the outcome. 
By the way, we tried to get Senator Kennedy on the show. This is probably the eighth time. Typically, we're Thursday. That's tough for some senators and congressmen. But some of them managed to make it. I mean, Lindsey Graham doesn't seem to matter what they're doing in the Senate. So we offered Friday, because apparently they're out Friday. We wish to tell you that we really, really tried, but we can't do it. So I guess he doesn't want to come on the show, Mr. Producer. His loss, not mine, I can tell you that. Here we go. Landry said, the evidence in our case is shocking and offensive. With senior federal officials deciding that they could dictate what Americans can and cannot say on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, other platforms. About COVID-19, elections, criticism of the government, and more. Landry told the AP, you know, these two guys would be great guests. Why am I wasting time with other people? They could be great guests. Meanwhile, an anonymous source in the White House condemned the ruling. Anonymous source. Joe, are you there? Joe? (laughs) Joe's checking out what happened with this cocaine. How did that get in the White House? I've never discussed business with Hunter, and I've never discussed cocaine with Hunter. We, look, we have two completely separate. We don't do this sort of thing. We would never discuss it. It's grotesque. Mark Levin. You are listening to the best. Of Mark Levin. All right, let the prosecution on radio begin, Joe Biden. Got to be patient with me here, folks. We're going to lay it out. Let us begin with our famous montage of many, many years ago that other hosts have since been using Mr. Produce on radio and TV alike. This goes to the issue of Joe Biden's credibility. Is he a man who tells the truth? Is he a man of character? Or is he a demagogue, propagandist, serial liar? Cut one, go! I uh, was sort of raised uh, in the Puerto Rican community at home. I was in the foot, uh, foot, foot, excuse me, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping, traveling with them. I've written extensively as a... When I was a law professor, I went to law school on a full academic scholarship. The only one in my in my class uh, to have a full academic scholarship. I was appointed to the academy in 1965. I didn't come to the academy because I wanted to be a football star. And you had a guy named Starback and Bellino here. So I went to Delaware. I got started out of an HBCU, Delaware State. Now, I don't want to hear anything negative about Delaware State here, okay? They're, they're, they're my folks. Went back to law school and, in fact, ended up in the top half of my class. I won the international moot court competition. I was the outstanding student in the political science department at the end of my year. I graduated with three degrees from undergraduate school and 165 credits. Only need 123 credits. And I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like. I am a hard coal miner, anthracite coal, Scranton, Pennsylvania. My dad was not a... Was he was a salesperson. He wasn't a coal miner. My great grandpa was. My first job offer, where I wanted my wife, deceased wife, and I wanted to move to Idaho because we think not a joke. It's such a beautiful, beautiful state. And I interviewed for a job with Boise Cascade. I got a commercial license because my dad used to run an automobile agency. Yeah, I used to drive a tractor trailer. Oh, and, awesome! Uh, and so I know a little bit about. Driving big trucks. It means that I've worked in the East Side. I deliberately went and worked for three years to make sure I was the only guy, only white guy that worked in the East Side. Because, you know, I wanted to understand. I was involved in the civil rights movement. But what I did wanted, you, What did you want to understand? What I want to understand. I didn't realize, for example, I was the only lifeguard in the project. Corn Pop was a bad dude. And he ran a bunch of bad boys. And so he was up on the board, wouldn't listen to me. I said, hey, Esther, you. Off the board, or I'll come up and drag you off. He said, I'll be waiting for you. He was waiting for three guys in straight razors. Not a joke. I used to be a lifeguard for years. And when I ran for the United States Senate, they said, well, why, why do you want a 29-year-old guy who's only been a lifeguard? Well, the truth was, I was a practicing lawyer. I'd been a public defender, and I had my own small law firm. The first frost, you know what was happening. You had to put on your windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. 
That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. You know how much it costs to make that insulin drug for diabetes? Cost. It was invented by a man who did not patent it because he wanted it available for everyone. I spoke to him. Okay. You better have helicopters ready to take those 3,000 civilians inside the green zone where I've been seven times and shot at. Think of Iraq because that's where my son died. Uncle Frank fought in the Battle of the Bulge and he won the Purple Heart. And he never received it. So he got him the Purple Heart. He had won it in the Battle of the Bulge. And I remember he came over to the house, and I came out, and he said, present it to him. Okay, we had the family there. I watched what happened when the kids from Parkland marched up to, and I, 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 I met with them, and then they went off to up on the hill when I was vice president, and they went off the hill to go into those neighborhoods. All those congressmen were like, no, I'm not Never here. Happened. I'm not here. I, I'm not, don't, don't tell them I'm around. God's truth, I've traveled over a million, 250,000 miles on that track. And one of the conductors I know for years walked up and said, Joey, baby, grabbed my cheek. <laughs> Uh, not a joke. <laughs> this day, 30 years ago, Nelson Mandela walked out of prison and entered into discussions about apartheid. I had the great honor of meeting him. I had the great honor of being arrested with our UN Never ambassador happened. on the streets of Soweto trying to get to see him on Robbins Island. I swear to God, true story. I swear to God, true story. True story. They think I'm kidding, man. Mm-hmm. Now we think you're nuts, actually. Let us turn to Mr. Producer. He's running for president. Uh, he's asked about uh, 1987 report. Let's play on Biden's plagiarism in law school. Please go ahead. While at Syracuse Law School, Biden was involved in a plagiarism incident. He quoted five pages of someone else's work without proper citation. He was given an F, but appealed to the faculty and allowed to repeat the course. He got a B. This comes in the middle of another controversy about plagiarism in Biden's campaign speeches. Today, he dismissed charges that he routinely adopts phrases from other politicians' speeches, called it much ado about nothing. Essentially, Biden said, everyone does it. The notion that every thought or notion or idea you'd have to go back and find and attribute to someone, I think is, quite frankly, uh, ludicrous. But to the political community in Washington, it all seems of a piece. Plagiarism at law school, plagiarism on the stump, for example. But this standard is not a measure of how we can evaluate the condition of our society. It cannot measure the health of our children, the quality of our education, the joy of their play. This is how it sounded when Robert Kennedy said those words in 1968. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. Biden gave Kennedy no credit. And, of course, he did the same with Neil Kunnick, the Labor Party leader, one time in Britain, and he's done it over and over and over again. And he's lying again today. I want to go to cut number two, Mr. Producer. There's Biden in South Carolina, West Columbia, South Carolina. Can't go to California. Can't go to Illinois. Can't go to Michigan, can't go to New York, can't go to New Jersey, can't go to the most populist blue states in the nation to talk about the economy. He has to go to the red states where he goes and he takes credit for what's being done in the red states. They're following Reagan. All right, cut to go. Earlier, we heard the leadership of Enphase uh say that $60 million they're investing here. Well, that's 1,800 jobs across the country and up 600 permanent jobs right here in South Carolina. All a direct result of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act I wrote, we wrote and passed. Well, that's, that's the last day of the past where so much money is coming in to make all this happen. And by the way, parenthetically, I want you to you're going to hear about the deficit. Cut the deficit, $1.7 trillion in two years. Nobody's ever done that. Cut the debt, $1.7. Even the hapless, low-rated, in the back pocket of the Democrat Party, constipated news network CNN has said this is a lie. Oh, they say it's not true. Not true is a lie. He didn't cut $1.7 trillion. First, out of one side of his mouth, he talks about all the new spending. The other, how he cut. Now, for most of us, that doesn't add up. But Joe Biden's a liar. And it's worked with his base. Lying has been very effective. 
so he does it. It's not second nature to him, it's first nature to him. The deficit was cut, quote-unquote, by $1.7 trillion because the COVID funds that were spent in the prior years were not passed again. They're gone. In fact, $200 billion of which they don't even know where they went. So that funding for the pandemic is not new funding. And he's claiming that's how he cut $1.7 trillion, he says, through his genius. Nobody's ever done this before. When he gets down like an old man on a corner wearing a raincoat, hey, little girl, then you know he's, he's lost it. In fact, the analyses tell us that but for that fact, Joe Biden's deficit would be far greater than the deficits and the overall debt that he's creating. So he hasn't cut one penny in the deficit. Not one damn penny. And there he's out there claiming that he cut $1.7 trillion. He can't help it. What did he call himself? Corn cob or something? Corn cob can't help it. Corn pop. That was a corn pop. Cereal, right? Corn pops, but you understand. Esther, Esther, get off that platform. I'm calling Joe Esther. He's a tough guy. You know, you got to get on how to talk to tough guys. But I want you to listen to this one in particular. This is a real doozy. Cut four, go. Folks, on a very serious note, when I ran, when I got elected, when I proposed these pieces of legislation, I made a commitment that I'd be present for all Americans, whether their elected officials voted for the events or not. All Americans wherever you voted for me or not. I've kept my promise. In fact, some analysis have said that the laws I've signed are going to do more to help red America than blue America. Well, that's okay with me, because we're all Americans. Because my view is, wherever the need is most, that's the place we should be helping. And that's what we're doing. Because the way I look at it, the progress we're making is good for all Americans. All America. Let me close with this. I'm not here to declare victory on the economy. Oh, okay. I'm here to say we have a plan that's turning things around quickly, but we have a lot more work to do. He really is a, a punk. People are flocking to the South and the Southeast. Here, Bloomberg reports 2.2 million people moved to the Southeast in just over the last two years. Roughly the population of Houston, Texas, just in the last two years. The South is growing. The Southeast is growing. Six fastest growing states, all Republicans. Florida, Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, and even North Carolina are now contributing more to the national gross domestic product than the Northeast. With its Washington, New York, Boston Carter, according to government figures. The switch happened during the pandemic and shows no signs of reverting. A flood of transplants helped steer about $100 billion in new income to the Southeast in 2020 and 2021 alone. While the Northeast bled out $60 billion based on IRS analyses. That's why the red states are growing. In spite of, despite this clown in the Oval Office. Then I heard our dear friend Jessica Tarloff. I never met her, but she's quite intelligent. She's a tolerable liberal, you know. Doesn't get under your skin like some liberals, but nonetheless, she made a point that's been made over and over and over again in the years since I've been behind this microphone. And it's been a point that doesn't get answered. That's what I'm here for. Rather than the five, we'll call this the six today. She said the blue states are subsidizing the red states and federal taxes. 
New York is subsidizing Alabama. The federal government gets more tax revenue from New York than it gets from Alabama. Alabama gets more federal money. I assume she meant per capita or however, than New York. And our dear friend Greg Gutfeld said, I don't know how to answer that. Okay, that's what I'm for. I'm number six. The five, I'm the sixth. Nobody's subsidizing anybody. As I just posted on social media, the federal government runs massive yearly deficits. Massive. We have nearly a $32 trillion debt. It's actually over $300 trillion when you include entitlements. All that means is the money the federal government raises from taxpayers doesn't even come close to the amount of borrowing and spending that's taking place, to the amount of printing that's taking place. It doesn't even come close to the amount of taxes that every person in every state is paying cumulatively to the federal government. New York's not subsidizing anybody. California's not subsidizing anybody. Blue states aren't subsidizing red states. The federal government's subsidizing everything and anything and everyone, which is why we're going broke. But you see, when things don't make sense, and you know in your gut that it's not true, you know in your gut that it doesn't add up, that a guy's saying he's spending like a drunken Marxist, but on the other hand, he's cutting the debt, you know that can't be true. Or that blue states that are going to hell are subsidizing red states that are, that are growing. They're not subsidizing red states. The economic action that's going on in this country, the growth, the prosperity, is happening in red states, not exclusively, but mostly. Because the productive elements more and more in these blue states are leaving the states and they're going to red states. Which is exactly why Joe Biden was in South Carolina taking credit for what's going on in a red state and red states. When he should be in a blue state taking credit for the depressions that he has created there. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. I read something. Actually, it was about a year or so ago by Mark Thiessen that I thought was very good. I never got around to this. But as I was doing research for my book, I put it in a special file. And I said to myself, I got to touch this. All of Joe Biden's talk about race. He nominates Jackson to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court, right? Here's what Mark Thiessen does to remind us from AEI. It's a very good piece. He's an opinion writer at the Washington Compost. So President Biden wants credit for nominating the first black woman to the Supreme Court. But here's the shameful irony. As a senator, Biden warned President George W. Bush that if he nominated the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, he would filibuster and kill her nomination. The story begins in 2003 when Bush nominated Judge Janice Rogers Brown, genius, by the way, to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, the appellate court in Washington. D.C. Circuit is considered the country's second most important court and has produced more Supreme Court justices than any other federal court. Brown was immediately hailed as potential Supreme Court nominee. She was highly qualified, having served for seven years as the Associate Justice of the California Supreme Court. By the way, the first black woman to do that. She was the daughter and granddaughter of sharecroppers, Grew up in rural Alabama during the dark days of segregation when her family refused to enter restaurants or theaters with separate entrances for black customers. 
She rose from poverty and put herself through college and UCLA law school as a working single mother. She was a self-made African-American legal star, but she was an outspoken conservative. So Biden set out to destroy her. Biden and his fellow Democrats filibustered her nomination, along with several other Bush circuit court nominees, all of whom had majority support in the Senate. The late great columnist Robert Novak called it the first full-scale effort in American history to prevent a president from picking a federal judge or federal judges he wants. Democrats argued that she was out of the legal mainstream, of course. Anybody to the right of Marx is out of the legal mainstream. Republicans responded she'd written more majority opinions than any other justice on the California Supreme Court. And she was reelected with 76% of the vote, the highest percentage of all the justices on the ballot. Which kind of proves the Democrats' point, doesn't it? It's out of their mainstream. When Democrats derailed her nomination, Bush renominated her in 2005. Brown was eventually confirmed 56 to 43. After Democrats released her and several other Bush nominees in exchange for a Republican agreement not to eliminate the filibuster for judicial nominations. That came around to bite them in the ass, didn't it? Biden voted twice. That is a second time against her nomination. He never explained why. And if Brown was so radical, Democrats let her through but killed 10 other Bush nominees. I know why, because Biden hasn't changed America, as you'll see in the new book. Any more than Lyndon Johnson changed. Any more than Franklin Roosevelt changed. They were all racists. It was about power, that's all. What do you want me to be today so I could be president? The following month when Justice Sandra Day O'Connor announced her retirement, Brown was on Bush's shortlist to replace her. She would have been the first black woman ever nominated to serve as an associate justice on the Supreme Court. And by the way, I think she could have even defined what a woman is. Much more qualified than Jackson in every respect. But Joe Biden went out of his way. He appeared on CBS's Face the Nation to warn that if the Bush, if Bush nominated Brown, she would face a filibuster. He said, I can assure you that would be a very, very, very difficult fight, and she probably would be filibustered, Biden said. Asked by moderator John Roberts, wasn't she just confirmed? Yes, that John Roberts. I love this John Roberts on Fox. He is fantastic. Anyway, Biden replied that the Supreme Court is a totally different ballgame because, quote, a circuit court judge is bound by stare decisis. They don't get to make new law. What Biden threatened was unprecedented. There's never been a successful filibuster of a nominee for associate justice in the history of the republic. Biden wanted to make a black woman the first in history to have her nomination killed by filibuster. Bush eventually nominated Sam Alito. Of course, that was fantastic. I know he's not a woman. I know he's not black, but he's still fantastic. Today, Biden calls the filibuster a relic of the Jim Crow era. That's what I mean. This is why I'm doing all this, pulling this all together for you. It's a relic of the Jim Crow era. Well, he's the one who did it. But he threatened to use that relic as a tool to keep a black woman who he eventually, who he actually lived under, who actually lived under Jim Crow off the highest court in the land. The irony is that now he wants to get rid of the filibuster. And claim credit for putting the first black woman on the court. This is what he does, Mr. Plagiarism. Isn't it? It's what he was doing today in South Carolina. Taking credit for all the fantastic policies and hard work of Republican governors and legislatures. There were many conservatives on Bush's short list whose legal philosophy Bush Biden opposed. But Biden only promised to filibuster the one black woman. Why? Perhaps a clue lies in another confirmation fight that Biden helped wage. 2001, Democrats blocked the nomination of Miguel Estrada, 
to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. According to internal strategy memos obtained by the Wall Street Journal, and by the way, which appear in a book you may have heard of Men in Black, they targeted Estrada at the request of liberal interest groups who said Estrada was, quote, especially dangerous. Why? Because he's Latino. And the White House seems to be grooming him for a Supreme Court appointment. That's a quote, unquote. They didn't want Republicans to put the first Hispanic on the Supreme Court. So Biden and his fellow Democrats killed Estrada's nomination. The first appeals court nominee in history to be successfully filibustered. This was Biden's strategy. He and Kennedy. Paid off when President Barack Obama nominated Sonia Sotomayor as the first Hispanic justice. See how it works? Democrats' commitment to diversity is a ruse, says Thiessen. Biden was willing to destroy the careers of an accomplished Latino lawyer and a respected black female judge and stop Republicans from putting either on the Supreme Court. For Democrats, it's all about identity politics. It's all about power. Indeed, Biden might not have become president had he not made the pledge to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. That promise helped secure the endorsement of Representative James Clyburn, which won Biden the South Carolina primary and rescued his faltering campaign. So Biden tries to bask in the glory of his historic nomination. Remember, remember Janice Rogers Brown, the black woman who does not sit on the Supreme Court today because of Biden's Jim Crow-like disgraceful obstruction. Did you know that, Mr. Producer? Is this guy not as sleazy as they get? People focus on his old age dementia. I mention it sometimes, but I focus much more on his absolute lack of character. This man will do anything, say anything, be anything you want. 1973, a racist segregationist. In 2023, their great white savior and everything in between. And he doesn't give a damn about you, your kids. He doesn't give a damn about your family. He doesn't give a damn about the damage he does to the country. It's all about Joe. It's all about Joe. And Hunter picked up on that quite well. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. Just to be clear to all the candidates and would-be candidates out there, this isn't your program. This isn't the GOP, you know, channel. Um, We try and bring candidates on who contact us who have something to say. But I don't run this show as a conga line for candidates just to kill time. Uh, Sometimes I'm friends with the candidate, so out of respect, I'll do it. Sometimes, you know, a candidate's second, third place. It's worth a shot. But if you're at 5% or under, 4% or under, maybe we'll bring you on and maybe we won't. We don't bring candidates on all the time. Most of the time, the candidates contact us. And if I put on, ladies and gentlemen, candidates who want to come on this program every time they ask, we would have a candidate every day, five days a week. Would we not, Mr. Producer? Would you listen to that? Would you even want to listen to that? I don't. So I figure you don't. So we try and spread it out from time to time. And I would say this. What we are learning here. It's that some of these candidates have campaign staffs that are really whip smart, on the ball, and some of them have arrogant putzes. Now, I'm not going to get into who right now, but it really is amazing. We've asked two or three times, you wouldn't bring us. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Do I owe you something? 
It's not a matter of keeping people off. It's a matter of keeping listeners. There's a lot going on in this country. It's not my job to make sure your candidate does better in the polls. It's my job to inform my audience, who's been with me for over 20 years, about what I think are the priorities going on in this country. The threats we face, which are infinite. I just wanted to make that clear to them. Now, the Wall Street Journal, several decades ago, 30 years ago, I think, give or take. Yeah, it was 2002, actually. Took the position that we should have open borders. The late, great Robert Bartley. He was the journal's editor for many decades before Paul G. Gott stepped in. And on July 3, 2000, he wrote a piece in the editorial page, and it was titled, Liberty's Flame Beacons a Bit Brighter. They said, it's one of this newspaper's proud little traditions. On the 4th of July, we offer an editorial salute to immigration. Back in the immigration debate of 1984, we proposed a five-word constitutional amendment. There shall be open borders. We have repeated this periodically since under our editorial headline invoking Liberty's torch, the rekindled flame. Has that worked, this open border stuff? I would ask the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We've now had experience with it under Joe Biden. Is that a good thing? Hundreds of thousands dead from drug overdoses, including fentanyl. Drug cartels controlling our border. Sex trafficking of women and little children. The government unable to track young people who come into this country, even though they're supposed to track them. them, Putting them out as fast as they can into the general public where they're now being basically indentured servants. Can anybody think of anything good that's come out of open borders? So the Wall Street Journal editorial page in the radical position was 100% wrong. But this is the mentality. Maybe they've changed their view, but this is the mentality they started with. That Paul G. Gott, the individual there who now is the editorial... Listen, I've known Paul G. for decades. We don't really talk. But when he calls me Mark Levin, when he knows it's Levin, I'll call him Paul G. Right, Mr. Producer? So here's this editorial, July 6, 2023, in the Wall Street Journal. DeSantis' crackdown will exacerbate the state's labor shortage while doing nothing to fix Biden's border failures. Florida Governor, they really like Chris Christie. They want Chris Christie to be the nominee. They would do anything for Chris Christie. They would, Peggy Noon, and I'll get to her later with her piece. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' economic record may be the biggest selling point of his presidential campaign, yet he's doing neither his state nor his campaign a favor with an immigration crackdown that looks excessive and may do economic damage in the fast-growing state. Now, most of these guys who write, without even putting their names on these editorials, They're built like pears, upside-down pears. Do you know what I mean, Mr. Producer? Which can happen if you sit too long. And I don't know the last time Paul G. Gott has been to the border or not, quite frankly. Mr. DeSantis signed legislation in May that he claimed would combat Biden's border crisis. But the law, which took effect, uh, let's see here, last week, does nothing to stem the flood of migrants taking advantage of the Biden Lax border last week. There's nothing to stem the flood of migrants taking advantage of the Biden uh, situation. How do they know this? Didn't they just say he just signed it into law, Mr. Producer? Well, they're prescient. The law requires employers with 25 or more workers to use the U.S. government's e-verify system to confirm the legal status of new hires. 
Those who don't could be fined $1,000 a day. Sounds pretty good to me. I mean, either you can have a law and enforce it or you're not. Businesses that knowingly employ undocumented immigrants can have their state licenses and permits revoked. Many employers may lay off workers they suspect are illegal to protect themselves. Isn't that a good thing? This sounds like a great law, by the way. I guess that's why people are pouring into Florida, not Manhattan, where the Wall Street Journal editorial page is housed. An estimated 772,000 undocumented immigrants. This is how they write. Wall Street Journal. Not illegal aliens. Undocumented immigrants. They talk like the left. Lived in Florida in 2018, many of whom have been there for years and contribute significantly to the state economy. Here you go. Construction, agriculture, hospitality depend heavily on undocumented workforces. Not least because of a shortage of U.S. workers for such lower wage and unskilled jobs. Don't we hear this endlessly, America? How many more aliens is it going to take for the Wall Street Journal and the other border pacifists to be bitten by reality? How many more millions and millions of aliens is it going to take? They use the same line every time. Jobs Americans won't do. If you have liberty and tyranny, dust it off. Dust it off and go to the immigration chapter. With this entire ruse about Americans won't do these low-skilled, unskilled, low-paying jobs is a lie. It is a flat-out lie. It is a stereotype, a negative stereotype of Americans. Employers in these industries are reporting that they have been losing long-time employees and can't find new ones to replace them. Well, why did they hire them in the first place? And when they hired them illegally, why didn't they take steps to bring them through the legal process? Is that the fault of a governor who's trying to secure his state? It is the Wall Street Journal, after all, not the Main Street Journal. Many workers who are here illegally are worried they will be found out. And some are moving to other states. A quarter to half of workers have reportedly gone missing from some construction sites in South Florida. The main reason for that is what? Florida will not, will not honor driver's license given to illegal aliens in other states. Because it does not give driver's licenses to illegal aliens. That is identification. For a lot of reasons, including voting. Florida's a top producer, tomatoes, oranges, avocados. Yet about half the crop farm workers lack legal immigration status. Now, how do they know that? And if they know that, how is it that all these illegal, excuse me, undocumented workers are here? The thumbing of your nose at the law just because it's immigration law, just because you have policies that you have believed for decades that are so radical and so damaging to the nation that you don't believe that a governor should secure his border to protect the people who are in his state is obnoxious. We can have legal immigration, but not as long as the border is open. Nothing's legal. Maybe the Wall Street Journal can tell us how many members of the drug cartels from Central and South America are in Miami. There are other cities in Florida. How much fentanyl is in Florida as a result of the failure to secure the border? How many unreported crimes, I can play this game, have occurred in Florida as a result of these open border policies. They don't care and they don't know. One grower in Homestead told Natokas Telemundo, oh, that's great, that she has struggled to find workers since the law passed, quote, South Florida's economy here in Homestead is agriculture. Most of them we know are undocumented, she said. Who's going to harvest? You know, we even have visa laws. My wife used to work in this field. 
this wasn't her area, but it was one of the things she was responsible for as a deputy general counsel for a company. There's like scores of various types of visas that can be given out, including for harvesting, you know, farming, seasonal visas and so forth. And they are used. And people use them. And the Wall Street Journal editorial page knows this, but doesn't communicate it to you. Part of the problem is that these are temporary visas. And after they're done, they don't leave. So according to the Wall Street Journal, just keep bringing people in. Don't enforce any of the laws. Don't enforce any of the visa requirements and limitations. Just keep the cycle going and going and going and going. Because they'll talk about the farms, but they don't go to the farms. They'll talk about the border, but they don't go to the border. Demand for services and housing are surging amid Florida's population boom. That means more workers are needed to build homes, change hospital beds, serve nursing home patients meals, keep restaurants open. Listen to how stereotypical and they sound like radical. They sound like AOC trashing the American people. They sound like Bernie Sanders. You see, you Americans, (coughs) excuse me, you don't want to build homes. But for immigrants, particularly legal immigrants, we wouldn't, <laughs> excuse me, we wouldn't be building homes, we wouldn't be changing hospital beds, wouldn't be serving nursing home patients, we wouldn't have our restaurants open. What kind of crap is this? This will dent the state's economic expansion, which has produced a jobs and tax revenue boom and an affordable standard of living for nearly everyone. And it goes on. It's really quite Detestable. Santos is right to lambaste the Biden administration and Congress for their immigration failures. They polarized the issue politically, made solutions much more difficult. Makes no sense for Mr. DeSantis to punish his own state, even as he vows to clean up the mess in Washington. Why don't you clean up the mess in the editorial page room at the Wall Street Journal? And why don't you tell the American people you favor open borders? You attack Biden from time to time, but Biden's only doing what you lectured about a couple of decades back. Really appallingly stupid piece. You could do better than that. I mean, there's like six of you sit around a table.